This is an ABC podcast. For copyright reasons, the music has been edited. 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 To hear the full tracks, listen to The J Files, Thursday nights on Double J. Or head to doublej.net.au and click on the track list at the bottom of each episode. Kaz Tran here. Welcome to The J Files, the podcast for people who love music. Each episode is like a quick music history lesson. We pick a different artist or band, we look at some of the most important moments in their career, and we celebrate their impact on music. We also give you access to the Double J and Triple J archives, packed full of iconic interviews. On this episode, it's Rowdy, Australian punk rockers, Frenzel Rom. I can't remember when I've ever had so much fun. The Sydney band have always stood out for their crude lyrics, on-stage shenanigans and strong sense of social awareness. For this very special edition of the J-Files, I caught up with Frenzel Rom's own Jay Wally, Lindsay McDougall and Ben Costello to look back on their career so far. We began by talking about how they got their start in the early 90s and what their first band name was before landing on Frenzel Rom. Underground vomit merchants. Of cheap air conditioning units and his free set of steak knives. That's right. Because uh, we thought we were hilarious. And uh, <laughs> and then we um, entered ourselves into the band competition at Sydney University. And I'm pretty sure they said, um, don't come in here with your stupid band names. Like, if you have a band, have a proper name. And you need it by this afternoon. And uh, so we're, like, frantically sort of looking around for things. And we opened up one of Ben's textbooks and... There was this French physicist. Yeah, and we sort of mangled his name and came up with um, Frenzel Rom. I think his name was Fresnel, like spelt Fresnel. Um, yeah, and we got and he had this thing called the Fresnel, the Fresnel Rom, and yeah, we sort of butchered it and came up with Frenzel Rom. Yeah, worst you band sure name in the them. history of band names. Exactly, <laughs> friends of Ron. Yeah, Fred's. I got Fred's Wombat a couple of years ago. That's a good one. Fred's <laughs> that'll Wombat's do. A good that'll one. do. Yeah. Yeah. Were you kind of thinking, you know, we want to get a band together or was it just a bit of a, a fun kind of let's just do this and stuff around? Or were you thinking, having some serious, um, you know, sort of idea about getting a band together? I feel like we we just kind of decided to do it on a whim and then um, and then f- like frantically tried to put together the set properly and assemble yeah. a band. And I think as well because we'd met um, – or I'd met Bo from Front End Loader at um... – uh, outside a philosophy lecture and we sort of met each other and um, I think we we had maybe already recorded a tape of um, a couple of songs because our bass player was at the School of Audio Engineering and we got some free time, recorded a demo tape and I remember Bo giving me his tape um, from Front End Loader and, um, and then listening to it and going, oh, my God, we need to get our tape back from him. This is, like, really good. Ours is so shit compared to this. <laughs> and and uh, it was kind of embarrassing. But then, you know, and that sort of, uh, I think, spurred us on a little bit too to try and, uh, you know, maybe try and do it a bit better. Lift Which game. we didn't actually succeed until 2011. <laughs> <laughs> and did you come second in the Battle of the Bands? Uh, I would think it was a hard third. A hard third. My 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 memory is like yeah, is like there was first and everyone else was second. <laughs> uh, everyone else. Is that was how second. you read the night? <laughs> That's how I read the night. 
what was it like for a band who just formed at, in the 90s and trying to get gigs and trying to get a leg up in the scene in the 90s? What was it like? I think it was pretty, I mean, it seemed pretty easy. I mean, there were lots of places to play, I guess. But this sort of still is. Were they willing to give you guys, you know, some young punks, you know, a, a, a go? I feel like we played with sort of every, like we would support Skunk Hour and Rat Cat and Splatterheads and, you know, like sort of anyone that would have us, we would kind of latch onto. Like it was kind of that, that golden era of like the Annandale and the Lansdowne and the, the Hoey and the Phoenician Club. I mean, it's easy to look back and think everything was good then and things aren't as good now, but, uh, but I'm not sure. There's, there's, there's a lot of venues around, there's a lot of bands playing. Um, it seemed pretty easy for us at the time in a way, but we used to have a sort of renter crowd. All our friends would come to all, the, all of our gigs and, until they got sick of us. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but we used to turn up to the gig with, you know, 50 of our best friends on yeah. almost every gig. And yeah. Yeah, we used to do the um, the landline calls. So like every show that we had, we'd like get on the landline and call like 100 people. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, Cap in hand, yeah, and they go home to our own house where we um, were actually paying for the phone bill. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> All right, <laughs> yeah, I saw I saw that recovery interview where where Nat was talking about uh, not paying the one thousand dollar Telstra bill. Actually, oh, was God. that was that a legit bill that you were racked up from calling all your mates? Uh, yeah, it would have been. Yeah, <laughs> wow, there was a lot of legwork. Yeah, I remember. Maybe it's probably just after that when I started going to all ages gigs. There were a lot of all ages gigs in Sydney at that time as well, and so maybe it was easy licensing wise to to play all ages gigs, and so you could just go to Sydney Uni and the Phoenician Club and the Metro um, and Sutherland Entertainment Centre near where I live, and just go and see bands like Friends or Rom, um, like quite often. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, I think that that would have been a, a huge factor actually in your exposure, just get, letting the kids in through the door. Um, but did it surprise you in some way, you know, the, the initial releases, how well they did? I mean, your first. I mean, this sounds like a sandwich. backhanded um, question here, Kaz. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was surprising. Thank you very much. Yeah, we, we thought there was anyone ever liked your music. <clears throat> they are terrible records, and we were very surprised. Yeah, we were very surprised. We thought they would sell a lot more. They should have. Yeah. No, I, th- I feel like everything in Friends of Rom's career has been a bit of a surprise. Um, when the, the the longevity of it and and where, you know in the, with the release of each record um, having people interested in it at all, um, that, especially that Dick Sandwich record, I mean that does sound like an absolute pile of shit. <laughs> and, and it's hard you can't even say the, the name in some company. You, the cover's <laughs> disgusting. I know like we couldn't we, tour like our first tour um, up to Lismore. We sort of turned up at we turned up at Lismore, and the owner of the uh, venue came out and told us we weren't playing because they'd had the poster up in the window all week of the cover, which is you know it's like cartoon drawing of someone like munching on some severed penises or what whatever. And and we got out of the van on our first tour, and they came out and said, "There's no way you're playing here tonight. This is disgusting." And she had the poster still in the still in the window, but with the penises scribbled out. <laughs> And we're like, oh man! But we just we had like on tour written on the inside of our van, like the, we very the window. We were so excited, and then yeah, and it was a, it was a terrible album um, EP, and oh uh, didn't gosh. sound good. I mean, yeah, I like. I mean, I like the songs. I just think the putting it together and recording it and everything else was 
we yeah. kind of crippled it. Yeah. Yeah, but from, from outside, like I think everyone that liked it just loved all of those things about it. No one noticed that it sounded rubbish because everyone was like, this is a ridiculous sound. This, this, this title is ridiculous. Everything about it is louder than everything else and it's very fun to listen to. Do you mean the bass is louder than everything else? <laughs> yeah, it was for the first 10 years of the band or so. Um, yeah, no, I, but I just, yeah, I just remember hearing it and just, because it didn't sound, well, I don't know, maybe this is just me reinventing what I thought at the time, but it didn't sound like the American punk rock stuff. It didn't sound, you know, perfectly sheen, that sheen that was on everything and those, you know, fancy, um, you know, weird um, punk, Californian punk rock guitar chords and stuff. I didn't have yeah, any of that. It that was, was just... that was definitely what we were trying to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so not sound like that at all. Friends all released their first two albums in quick succession. Their debut, Coughing Up a Storm, was released in 1995, and the follow-up, Not So Tough Now, the next year. It was at this time that Ben Costello left the band, and Lindsay McDougall took up the guitar in his place. Jay and I started off at Sydney Uni, um, and we kind of left uni, and we were sort of touring all the time and recording, and and I was sending this letter of deferral every year, thinking that I would go back to uni, and I, I sort of harboured this dream of doing um, like a PhD or something in maths and for some reason I was drawn back to uni <laughs> and I just thought, oh, look, I'm just getting, you know, look, I've really loved everything about Friends or Rom but I also wanted to do that and I couldn't really do both at the same time. So um, Jay and I talked about it and, um, yeah, and I, I sort of decided to go back to uni. Yeah. Um, so I did do that and um, I also got involved in some animal rights sort of um, activism stuff. Wow. Um, so I didn't do that PhD. I got as far as honours and thought, oh, I don't want to be sitting in a dark room for the rest of my life looking at math symbols. Um, so I did go out into the world and get a job. But, um, but yeah, so I... I left the band. Right, right. Fair coward. Enough. Fair enough. Massive, <laughs> massive coward. And it was one of those, like, such a uh, such a, uh, a beautiful change I'd hand over. Like, I got invited to go to Ben's house and he taught me how to play the songs on That's So Tough Now. <laughs> and then, ironically, recently when Ben got up to play with us, he had to ask you how his songs went. No, I, had, uh, I actually had to find YouTube videos of him teaching other people how to play the songs. But oh, I don't remember that. What was that chord? <laughs> so, so did you, I mean, Lindsay, you were in the picture somewhere along the line already at this stage. Was it, you said it was a natural kind of shoe-in situation oh, for you? It didn't seem very natural for me. I mean, I was this, this shitty little kid from the Sutherland Shire who would, you know, was into grunge about three months before I joined Friends All Rom. I was playing Pearl Jam songs at school. So I'd left school in, the, in December and then joined the band in like April or May. But um, no, I, I'd, um, I had gone to a bunch of Frenzel shows. This is the embarrassing bit. I'd bought, uh, I'd gone to a Frenzel show at um, Sydney University, an all ages gig, and I got a set list signed by the band. I got it framed and gave it to my girlfriend for her birthday around about then. Then I joined the band very soon (laughs) after that, which is a little bit embarrassing, but it was cool. um, My friend Mary Ellen ran the video shop in Engadine where I grew up and she sold me um, some Frenzel CDs that she didn't 
um, want. <laughs> and um, that's how I learned the songs. She mustn't have had them for very long. <laughs> <laughs> it was Dick Sandwich and Coughing Up a Storm that she sold me. And that was, and that I'd listened to those and learned to play those songs. And that's how I knew how to play the songs. Um, wow. I came to audition. I could have sold you some CDs. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, never, I, hadn't bought, I don't think I even had any friends or merch at the time besides that set list. <laughs> wow. So you were a big fan. You know, before yeah. before you kind of joined the band. Yeah, me and all this my is friends like were the Jason this, yeah. Newstead joining Metallica thing. You know? Yeah, but I didn't get a that's million the... bucks like he did. Or was that the that was, that <laughs> that was, was the next guy? But um, yeah, that's always been my my key. Like, surround yourself <laughs> with good musicians, but uh, preferably people that really like your band beforehand. <laughs> so uh, you know, they're going to be uh, they're loyal, like yeah. um, like dogs. Like <laughs> <laughs> The late 90s was a purple patch for Frenzel Rom. Their classic 1997 record, Meet the Family, had some blunt messages delivered with infectious hooks and a cheeky smile. Their huge 1999 album, A Man's Not a Camel, saw them slow things down, explore harmonies and really let their pop instincts come to the fore. Here's Jay and Lindsay talking about this particularly fruitful time. Meet the family. I'm trying to remember how. I feel we like were, it was we a were, shock record. Yeah, we were signed to shock by this point. So, on um, Shagpile, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The little yeah. sub label. Yeah, so, um, so I joined the band and then had to do nothing basically because Punch in the Face was already written, it was getting played on the radio, and then we got signed to, to Shock Records. Yeah, and we, we decided that we would get um, the guy, uh, Donnell Cameron, who had done How to Clean Everything by Propagandy, thinking what a great sounding record. Um, and we got him to come out to Sydney and we recorded, I think, at the Alberts, the ACDC studio, mm. and thinking with all these things combined, how could it not sound like an amazing record? <laughs> and it really doesn't sound like that yeah. at all. The thing um, was like, that Propaganda are really good songwriters and ACDC oh, thank were you. not in the studio. <laughs> 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 no, but it was, uh, yeah, but like uh, that album, How to Clean Everything, probably doesn't actually sound that good. Really, probably not, yes. Songs. Yes, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. the it was the intent of the playing yeah. probably that make it sound but, so great. But that's um, the same thing without with Meet the Family. Like there's some pretty dodgy production decisions that, that we I think we made on it. But there's some damn, there's some really cool songs. Yeah, some fun some fun songs yeah. on it for sure. Yeah, that was kind of cool having a, an American guy sort of working on it. We sort of seemed to be yeah we were playing a lot of all Asia shows at that time we'd play we'd tour i think when ben was in the band too we would tour and um we'd be doing two shows a day doing the all ages in the afternoon and then a grown-ups at night and the all ages were always way more packed than the yeah. the over 18s yeah always we were doing that right around this record like this record was written and recorded during like we were on tour constantly the whole time like i'd only joined the band a year ago and yeah, we were just we somehow recorded it at the start of '97, I think, and then yeah. came out came out in September. Yeah, and and you, you being on tour a lot, Lindsay, that inspired the mum. Mum changed a lot. Right? <laughs> Is that a real story? I feel like I don't that's know. become I want a real story. No, no, it's, re- it's I feel really like not it's become real. It's really not a, a real story, but um, <laughs> but my mum um was a high school teacher, and so she would cop a lot of shit from her students. Um, <laughs> knowing that she was my mum. Oh, miss, did you really change the locks? She's like, oh my God, kill me. And people still talk about when I came home from the first tour because apparently uh, there was an interview where Jason said that I just told my mum I was going to the shops. 
and then went on tour, went to America for three months and came back. And the, the locks were changed. That, I think that was the, uh, the explanation of that song at the time. Who's, who's Mr. Charisma, by the way? Is there a particular inspiration or just, you know, somebody... <laughs> Somebody random along the line. Yeah, I don't know. I think I feel like most of um, my songs, I just invent these characters and think, you know, maybe there'll, there'll be someone. There's definitely people like this around, you know. Um, and then, yeah, and then I just tell people that it's someone we've kicked out of the band. So it's probably Ben. <laughs> <laughs> your reaction, you know, seeing this album getting into the top 40 mainstream charts in Australia? Um, my reaction? Yes. How did you feel? Shock. Today? Absolute <laughs> shock. No, I mean, I, um, I, th- I feel like at that time, everything was sort of going better than the thing before. So I figured that that was the thing. And I guess we got our first gold record at around that time. And um and that was sort of a st- very strange. It was like this sort of worlds worlds colliding, I guess. Like we'd sort of always always operated outside of the any kind of assistance from the industry, really. Like it was minimal radio play. Um, I think by that so like we'd sort of been kind of bounced from Triple J after an interview at this festival where we were just <laughs> yeah, full of the devil and. Um, probably pricks actually in hindsight but uh um you know so you're bagging triple j for playing the same 40 songs yeah that stuff you know yeah yeah. and um and sort of well that's what we love you know you speak it you speak the truth yeah i mean at that time we had a sense that um that you know triple j was sort of helping bands that didn't need help you know that they they were already doing really well um, and playing festivals and getting lots of people to their shows. And there was this whole other culture of bands that were being totally ignored that could have done with a bit of a leg up, you know, and mm. that wrote great songs and, you know, would have fitted well with their audience and all that stuff that, yeah, we felt was sort of being ignored. And remember our manager, who's was such a shit stirrer. And he's like, if you're going to go in and do an interview, just make sure it's memorable. <laughs> like, oh, all right. And that was, you know, the, all the shaving of the head, of trying to shave Dylan's head and mm. all that stuff stemmed from that, I reckon. Like, yeah, right. he seems so, like, the the songs were such a, I mean, they're, they're va- of vague importance to him, but everything else, you know, if you're going to play the big day out, you know, let's get some giant, um, uh, you know, John giant, Howard pinatas. John Howard pinatas and get kids throw, up on stage to bash them until the yeah, blood falls let's out. Let's get Neil them. Hamburger and throw, throw McDonald's burgers at people <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> exactly. There was. Um, um, I mean, that's, always... I mean, that is, I guess, the job of a good manager. It's to do all the other <laughs> stuff. We do the music; he does all the pizzazz. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, we we sort of felt at that time, around that time, that meet the family time. I guess that we were there was a lot of people coming to our shows with no support really from any from anyone. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so so the, all the radio stuff and whatever just seemed kind of alien. And you know, getting gold records, it was like it was what we infiltrated this other world somehow. Yeah, and, um, and yeah, we were still that, that kind of sh- we we're still shit kickers in America when we were playing. So we were sort of touring a lot in America during ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine. Yeah, and no, so we gave we a were, shit. 
Yeah, we were still doing our best to try and like, you know, we were playing with a lot of, you know, bands that were getting a lot of people to the shows and we were having a great time and, you know, making sort of, you know, making fans sort of sort of just one one after another, but not like we weren't doing anything like, you know, the living end or anything we we're doing in America at the time. So it was very, like to come back to Australia and people were like, you know, we're getting played and we're going on Hey Hey at Saturday and playing at the Arias and all that. It was just, yeah, a very, very different thing to what we were mostly doing in the rest of our life. And also, yeah. we were broke for a lot of that as well. We were getting, like, I was getting 250 bucks from the band, couldn't get on the dole, and, and that was all. That was like our entire income, and that was mostly going in rent. So it was a funny wow. little world to be a part of. So Gordy went into uh, making a man's not a camel with you, which uh, was, you know, that that album is, it, it's a punk classic, you know. Yeah, it's which is amazing because it's got two good songs on it, <laughs> <laughs> and it's More. really slow and poppy. Yeah, <laughs> so I guess that was the style of the time. I mean, this was all like, you know, this is, of course, when the, you know, there were so many Australian alternative and in inverted commas bands doing big things across Australia. So it was kind of um, swept up in that. But um, yeah, it was, it's, it's funny to listen back to it now and up against like actual punk records. Yeah, I think we went into that record with an intention to, again, direct a Chris Moses directive, um, like you should change punk like you should just sort of reinvent it and like play the whole thing on different instruments or do just That's something right. different, you know. And um, we failed at that, but mm. we did have a ladder in one song. Um, yeah, and I remember we put we put like blankets over a drum kit. Yeah, know, and I was definitely right. trying harder with songwriting and stuff and trying to make it, um, trying to kind of yeah. I guess that's where some of those earlier um, sort of eighties pop sort of mm. sensibilities crept in. Yes, um, I was about to, to say that that it's yeah. most evident on this album, actually. And you're yeah. singing. I mean, you you actually you know sing with. I, I can feel it. The pathos. In... Another backhanded uh, comment there about the previous <laughs> records. But, uh... <laughs> um, we had a lot of fun doing harmonies and stuff, and working out fun little kind of yeah, little tricks, getting stuff, little little yeah. twists and stuff, little rhythmic mm. twists and things in mm. there. It's being. Massive, um, massive wankers. But, yeah, uh, well, like because we were doing slower, like drum beats. Not everything wasn't just fast the whole time. It means we could do cool little things with, especially having Gordy being that he can do anything. You yeah, ask on the drums except for the um, Rosanna Toto shuffle. You can do, you can do anything, and um, and this means that yeah, we could just do whatever we wanted really, and we were enjoying having a bit more space in the songs to do silly things. Yeah, and still sort of, I guess, enough of those. Um, kind of faster um, sort of fun songs that, you know, we didn't alienate absolutely all of our audience. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How was working with, well, this was, Another American producer you got to work with um, on this record, wasn't it? Eddie, uh, Eddie Ashworth? Ashworth, yeah, Eddie Ashworth. Yeah, he was a great, he was a great so, dude. Um, yeah, we we pulled him off the bench again for San Susi a few years later. Um, yeah, but uh, but yeah, that was great. We were at Redondo Beach in LA, which was like the um, yeah, Total Access, which was kind of like the home of all those cock rock bands from the eighties. So. Like Don Dockin turned up at one point and mm. um, that band Great White, um, they had like the same limo that they had in the 80s, like driving past, <laughs> blowing smoke and dents in the doors and stuff. 
And um, and Pennywise were next door as well. Yeah, doing something that was. I think fun. Guns and Roses did something in there at one point. And yeah, Pennywise used let us use all their gear, and mm. Fletcher was a total menace, and um, it was like <laughs> in a really a beautiful way. Yeah, it was a really um, really fun fun record yeah. to make. We were staying in some cheap um, sort of hotel just sort of in the next suburb over and it was just all like, yeah, like we did actually do half the record in at Sing Sing in Melbourne but then, yeah, all of this in total uh, over in, in Redondo Beach was just a very strange time being there. You know, we were, I remember seeing a, uh, like a, some, because this is like essentially Hollywood, you know, and a few few kilometres away from all of that stuff and there was a band doing a photo shoot on the beach and the photographer was digging a ditch because the the singer was so short so he was digging ditches <laughs> for the other members of the band to stand in. <laughs> was the same height. <laughs> That's so the good. world we were in, you yeah. know? It was ridiculous. And then we're there with Fletcher with his device, which is what he called a bottle of rum, just like stalking around the hotel telling us what songs we need to release and all this sort of stuff. That's right, strange. yeah. Betting us, he was like, I'll give you $3,000 if I miss my lung doesn't go to number one. <laughs> he still owes us that, by he the way. A Man's Not a Camel was a career high point for Frenzel Rom, but there was in the band's eyes a creative misstep in the album that followed. Here's why they think Shut Your Mouth is their worst record, and for a long time it wasn't allowed to be mentioned within the band. We'd done the Man's Not a Camel record and to, to much accolades and, you know, um, ARIA nominations. We played at the ARIA Awards and yes. all this stuff, and then our deal with Shock was up. And um, we were just basically just waves, money being poured on our faces um, <laughs> by uh, by Sony, who were yeah just offering us all this money to record the next record. And we're like, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the the amount of money that um, you know we will quite happily just get on our knees and suck dick. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I it paid my rent up until two thousand and. Until we started Triple J, until yeah. 2004, 2005, yeah. so I was fine with that. It was, yeah. it, we, wow. we, were, we were so, not so poor, but we were, it was pretty hard. Yeah, uh, and it was the most money that we'd ever seen, ever seen you know, yeah. and, but also not enough money to, you know, buy a house or no. anything like that. And because mm. um, we had been, you know, our previous years, our, you know, income was more like $4,000 or whatever. Mm. And then, so the idea of going into a bank and saying, you know, oh, I've got enough for a deposit on a house. And oh, yeah, how much are you going to earn next year? Uh, maybe a dollar. <laughs> um, and so it was sort of a weird thing to have all this money and nothing to sort of spend it on except for rent and and kind of living. Yeah. And then um, and then we sort of because it was an advance, um, you know, we that we had to pay it back through record sales, and yes. we delivered them the worst record that we've ever made. <laughs> <laughs> they, and they quietly just sort of let us walk away. Don't get a million bucks for getting out of bed. Don't get a million bucks when I punch folks in the head. And even if we never get a billboard top ten hit, at least we know the muscle clothes bands are fucking pile of shit. Their 2003 record, San Suzy, kicked off a new approach to music making, including the advent of the punk rock spreadsheet. That was the start of the, the new era of Frenzel Rom, the, uh, the Frenzel Rom process. 
Yeah. Right. And you started, you bought a, um, like a little recorder, a little eight track recorder so we could actually do demos. Yeah. Started, started doing all our own demos and stuff. Right. Is um, this the first time in the band's career that you've done this? Like doing, doing your own demos? Yeah. I have a feeling Lex might've done a few for the previous couple of records, but then before that we'd be going into the studios and spending a fortune on, you know, demos and stuff. And yeah, at least this way, yeah, I could start recording rehearsals and right. start really like filtering out all the shit songs and, yeah. um, you know, working out what sounded good and stuff. And it was also when we um, brought in to play the punk rock spreadsheet. Um, really? Which Tell is me. The, uh, so at the end of the demoing process, um, we uh, get together. So some, some of the recent records we've written sort of between 50 and 70 songs sometimes for a 20 song record. And um, we basically have a spreadsheet with um, we get four votes uh, each uh, plus our manager. So five five people get um, uh, get to pick their songs for the record, and any any song with three votes or more is automatically on the record. And then if that's not doesn't make up enough um, to make up half an hour's worth of music, then everyone gets one wild card. <laughs> so there's a lot of a lot of lobbying going on, like oh, yeah. vote for your shit song if you vote for mine. <laughs> a lot of backroom deals. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, but it sort of works. Everyone's you know everyone's sort of relatively happy with the records. But that was the yeah. Sans Susi was the first time we'd attempted that, and it worked out pretty mm. good. Yeah, wow. just cause, because we, we it was the first time we'd ever written like demoed so many songs, but we all we had them all, and we we had them all on our on these discs, and so we're like, oh, what are we going to actually put on the record? So we could actually get rid of all the crap songs like for the first time, rather than after the album comes out, go, oh, that's a shame that that's on the record. And it sort of <laughs> made sense the process because we'd always um, split everything equally, like including publishing. So no matter who wrote what, mm. everyone would get equal money whenever there was money for anything. Wow. Uh, for what for what you played on. In 2011, Frenzel Rom teamed up for the first time with legendary American punk rock drummer and producer Bill Stevenson from Descendants. They took demos recorded for their next album, Smoko, at the Pet Food Factory to Stevenson's studio in Colorado, an experience they enjoyed so much that they did the same for their 2017 album, High Viz High Tea. Here's Jay talking about the creative process behind the two albums. My recording studio is called the Pet Food Factory oh. because we uh, don't produce very good music, but we produce a lot, um, which is why it's called the Pet Food Factory. Pet Food and Factory. When we were recording that, all well, the demos for that record in my studio, um, we spent the vast majority of the time sitting on the balcony outside, um, not actually making music. So that was... <laughs> That was why that record was called that. And then so in my studio, fast forward a few years later, and I was brought on board to do Blackie from the Heart on Song a Day. So we basically recorded 366 songs um, and released one song every day. Wow. And all of them had um, kind of multiple <clears throat> tracks, um, you know, proper production, uh, it wasn't even the acoustic songs. Like, yeah, even the acoustic songs had – you know, multiple layered harmonies and keyboards and uh, different things. And most songs were sort of full band and it was cross genre, um, you know, from sort of art rock to punk to, you know, acoustic and folk and all all sorts of um, different styles and stuff. Mm. Just Blackie's wild mind being able to just produce that many ideas was kind of crazy. And I'm being, uh, you know, Ben and I, 
very old, big fans of Hard On, so it was good. But I was also trying to write High Viz, High T at that same time and really not having very much time to do it. So yeah. I have sort of some slight, when I listen to it now, I'm like, oh, could have tried a bit harder, but I still like it. But um, I mean, I think if you, if you, you know, like everyone would say, if you did your perfect record, you would never do another one. So mm. very much looking forward to the next one. So we're going back to Colorado in October to record the new one. Wow. With with whom? With, with Bill, Bill Stevenson. Bill again? again. Yep. Um, yeah. And uh, so the the years of, well, less less activity with COVID and crap like that has given you a lot more time, has it, to, to really focus on the songwriting? Sort of, but also not. Like I was really hating it during COVID when you'd hear people on the radio going, what a great time for artists to really knuckle down and not be distracted by the performances, whatever. And you're like, man, I need people around me to write. Like, yeah. you know, I'll come up with what I think are 10 of the best ideas ever known in the history of music. And it's only when I jam them with the band that I realize that nine of them are awful. <laughs> and, you know, it's really, you just lose, I lose total perspective um, if I don't yeah. have people around me. So, the idea yeah. of trying to be creative in that bubble was impossible for me. Friends all have been fan favourites at gigs and festivals in Australia and around the world for decades. While the band might argue their success is a happy accident, there's no denying their charm and quirky likability. The J Files is a Double J podcast. Make sure you like, follow and share. Our producer is Gab Burke. Theme music is by Art vs Science. You can check out Double J anytime on the Triple J app or at doublej.net.au. I'm Kaz Tran. Thanks for listening.